You're listening to the Gates Church Podcast. For more information or to support this ministry, please visit thegates.org. And happy Thanksgiving to, to all of us. As, as Greg was saying at the start, we have, we have much to be thankful for, don't we? There's, there's so many things. I'm thankful for my family. I'm thankful for my church and for this place and this time together uh, today to, to worship and, and to look at the word together. And I think, if I can say this, probably more than anything else in the entire universe, what I'm most thankful for is who my God is on this weekend. That's what, what trumps all other things, the bottom line, right? Well, um, continue to be thankful for forever and forevermore is who God is and his goodness and his love that he's shown for me and for us. And so while I won't be sharing a, a Thanksgiving message necessarily, uh, this is a message of Thanksgiving, of praise and honor to, to our good, good God. That's kind of what we've been talking about in a general sense for a month or two. We've been doing a sermon series that's titled God for Us, where Paul famously says in Romans, if God, if God is for us, then who can be against us? And so each week we've kind of been uh, talking about some of the questions that come out of that statement, right? Like, who is God? Who is this God that's for us? And, and if he's for us, what does this look like? What does it mean for the God of the Bible to be for you and I? So uh, we've asked questions and we've, we've kind of been uh, doing away with some of the wrong thinking that we might have about God as well, right? So we've been... Uh, we've we've dealt with the idea that well God is God is distant he's he's far away and he's he's hard to get to and we have to climb some kind of spiritual ladder to get to him and all this stuff no no we've we look at the Bible and see the good news that he actually did the opposite he came to us right he leapt over time and space all barriers to know us and and we also uh, just last week we were talking about. How sometimes we feel like God's not there for us, or that He that He doesn't really care about us because we do go through hardship and struggles and trials and and again we looked at the word and saw that it's it's the opposite. It's Jesus who weeps with us more closely than anyone ever could. So today I'm kind of continuing along these lines about talking about how God is for us. And that brings us to the questions about who God is and, and what this means for God to be for you and for me. Imagine with me for, for a moment, you're, uh, you get up in the morning and you go to check your mail, not on your phone, not email, but the actual mail that comes to your front door. We pay taxes to make that happen. And so um, you open the mailbox and and there's junk mail and bills as usual and so it's okay great you pull out the mail and as you're kind of flipping through seeing what you need to discard and what you need to pay for the bills tucked in there is an invitation and uh first you didn't see it then you're like wait what's this an invite it's a wedding invitation um, so-and-so invite you, you know, with pleasure to the wedding of this person to that person. And you think, great, 
Okay, a wedding invitation. I am probably busy next summer. I don't think I'll be able to make it to another wedding next year. So when you flip it over, on the back it says RSVP, RSVP, and please check one of the two options for the entree at the reception, and there's chicken cordon bleu and cedar plank salmon. And suddenly you have a change of heart, and you start thinking, you know what, actually... I actually think I might be free to uh, to go to this thing. So you find the pen and excitedly check both boxes. Yes, please, to both. And, uh, that sounds great. And you mail it off. And so months pass, and the, and the wedding day comes. And so far, everything is completely normal. And if you've been to a wedding, it's just what you would imagine. You come to find a parking spot, come to the church, sit down. There's music playing. Everything looks nice. And uh, love is in the air, and and so the the finally the the guys come out on stage with the person officiating, and and they're fidgeting and and excited, right, nervous and excited, especially the groom as he's anticipating this moment where that he's been waiting for, and finally where you know he sees his bride, but some time has to pass, and then finally the moment that really kind of starts things comes, and the. The bride enters the back of the room, and the person officiating says, "All rise," and you do. You can't really see the bride because you're in the seats, and she's walking down the aisle, and everyone's like doing this with their phones to to get uh, blurry photos of her. And she and she approaches the front, and like I said, everything is just normal, just a nice wedding so far. So far, so good. But what happens next? is one of the weirdest, uh, most bizarre moments, for sure, in a wedding that you've ever witnessed, but possibly in your life. What you expect the bride to do is approach the stage and then walk up and uh, grab the hands of her groom, and things will continue on as normal, and they'll kiss the bride and things, you know, they get married. I told you this gets weird. The the what happens instead, unfortunately, is the bride comes up on stage and she uh, kind of is walking towards the groom, but it seems like her angle's off a little bit. And what she does is she passes by the groom. She links hands with one of the groom's men. And she kisses him instead. Uproar ensues. Like I said, it was going to get weird. This is the strangest and worst wedding you've ever been to. In fact, it's it's not a wedding at all. It's uh, betrayal. The bride is unfaithful. The groom is uh, heartbroken, shocked, and confused. And this is so. This is just a, a made-up story, and it is weird. But the reason that. Um, I tell you this to start the message is because as we uh, as we read the Bible and we open up the Word and we we go through, especially in the Old Testament, we read the history of of God and His people. This is an allegory of that, where the groomsman, or sorry, the the, the groom himself represents God and the bride, uh, the bride to be represents Israel and God's people 
and their unfaithfulness to the God who has betrothed himself to them and promised his love to them in the way that, again and again, like I said, all you've got to do is start reading through the history of Israel and see that this type of thing happens. It happens in various ways. It takes many different forms. But there's one, uh, there's one in particular, kind of the, perhaps the biggest moment of, of betrayal, which kind of goes along these lines of the wedding ceremony where the bride is, shows up, but she's not with the groom. She's with someone else. And this comes from Exodus. Um, I'll read some from chapter 32 in a minute, but some background. Uh, God's people, Israel, were in slavery, right? They were in Egypt. They were oppressed. They were kept down by, by uh, being slaves for the Egyptians. And so finally God, God had promised to free them, and he did, right? He, he used Moses as their leader, and he took them out, out of Egypt in, in a series of uh, incredible events and miracles, and, and God was faithful to remove them from that scenario. Um, many other things happened. It was, it's quite the journey. But anyways, they're at the base of the famous Mount Sinai. And Mount Sinai is where God's presence came to rest and where God invited Moses to uh, come up and be with him and to hear from him and to receive the law that would be essentially the, the wedding documents that would seal the covenant between Israel and himself, okay? We know them as the Ten Commandments. And so God speaks uh, with Moses while he's up on the mountain with himself in his his shining, glorious presence. And Moses receives the tablets which have the law written on them for just to set God's people apart, right? For them to be his and for him to be theirs. Anyways... So what happens when, when Moses is up there? What are the people doing down below while they're waiting? This is where we pick up in Exodus 32. Moses has the law and God says, and spoke, spoke to Moses, Hurry up and go down. Your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt are ruining everything. They've already abandoned the path that I've commanded. They've made a metal bull calf for themselves. They've bowed down to it. They've offered sacrifices to it and declared, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I've been watching these people. I've seen how stubborn they are. Now leave me alone. Let my fury burn and devour them. And I'll make a great nation out of you. So this moment, this transition from Moses off the mountain with the law for God's people was supposed to be a celebration, a ceremony, not unlike a wedding, right? Where God would make himself known to them in the, in the particular ways that they were to be united to him as well. Meanwhile, instead of, I don't know, readying their hearts, I guess, or, or getting ready for Moses to come back, they became impatient and God's people threw a party. They made an idol with their own, hand, with their own hands. They threw a party and they, they had a worship service for this object in place of God. And in fact, they said, this is the God who saved us. 
It's no wonder that God was angry and furious. It's interesting what happens next. I have to give kudos to Moses. Sweet, sweet Moses. What a leader of his people. You know, he's... uh, God says, hurry up, go find them. I'm furious. I'll destroy them. And Moses has the confidence, I guess, to respond to God and to actually remind God and try and turn God's heart. And and so he speaks and says, he, he reminds God of his promise. He says, he says, yes, they're, they're unfaithful. They're worshiping an idol. But God, remember, you promised to save us. You brought us out of Egypt. And what for? Or even further back, remember Abraham. You made a covenant with Abraham to to lead him to greatness, to make the uh, to make yourself known to the nations through him. And he, he brings God back to the reasons and the love for which God has his people. That's the reason that he saved them and redeemed them in the first place. And the Lord listens to Moses. He relents and he doesn't bring disaster that you could argue he was justified in in, uh, in doing. He did not do. Uh, he did not punish them with the wrath that he uh, felt so strongly in this moment. He, he had grace and waited. So this is just one point, but it's one of the most significant points in Israel's history with God, where they're where they're cheating on him, right? This Moses were a moment, this, this moment where Moses returns from the mountain would be, should have been one of the most significant uh, bonds between God and his people, and instead it was just, just the opposite, and it, it broke God's heart, and it caused um, significant problems for the relationship, let's put it that way, and that kind of continued to be a theme. You know, that's an exodus near the beginning, but you read, it's a roller coaster ride all the way through, but more often than not, it's rough for God's people as they, um, you know, don't necessarily learn from their mistakes or, or they don't necessarily make good on their end of the covenant to, to be faithful to God. So this brings us to, there's, there's another and really awesome example Further down the further down the line in the history of of Israel to God's um, of this same kind of uh, story, and this is in the Minor Prophet, the small book in the Old Testament called Hosea. Hosea is a short um, short book, sometimes overlooked, sadly, because. Uh, as far as I feel anyways it's truly one of the most amazing pictures of the gospel of the good news of of our salvation that we can find anywhere by reading this book Um, so obviously we won't read the whole thing Uh, but it's, it's 14 chapters it's short it was written around 700 years before Christ which was a tumultuous time for God's people. Like I said, oftentimes things were bad, and this was certainly a bad time to be an Israelite or people of God. There were, they were all but wiped out. The nations surrounding them were pressing in, and, 
and uh, trying to conquer and, and, and just, it was a nightmare. It was war-torn, uh, a sad time, a sad time for Israel and Judah. So this is the setting of Hosea. And, and yet there's Hosea the prophet. And so uh, his, his job was to, to pray, to be near to God, hear God's voice, and then to um, correct and lead God's people in what he felt God was leading them into, right? To be the voice of the Lord for their, um, for their guidance and their, their growing to, to grow closer to their God and so on. So, like I said, it's 14 chapters. The first three chapters of Hosea are um, kind of the story or the biography, a little bit about himself and, and what God asks him to do. And then the next 11 chapters are kind of the explanation or the, the results of, of Hosea's uh, message from God and, and, and kind of interpreting it for Israel and telling them what it means. So let me summarize chapters 1 to 3 of Hosea. Um, Right at the beginning, God speaks to Hosea and he says, Hosea, I want you to go find a wife. Now, I don't, it doesn't say this here, but I imagine Hosea receiving this as perhaps good news. Maybe he was happy. Finally, God has heard my, my prayer for, for true love or whatever, right? I get to go marry someone. Very quickly, uh, God gives more details and he says, I, I know who you should marry. So Hosea's like, okay, who is the Lord? And the woman who God has called him to marry is named Gomer. If you don't know the story, Gomer is truly not the woman of Hosea's dreams. No, no, no. She uh, would be the opposite. She's uh, a lady of ill repute. Some translations, uh, some translations call Hosea a prostitute. Sorry, call Gomer a prostitute. And uh, other ones translated as a woman of whoredom. So however it's worded, the difficult fact is that this this woman for Hosea to marry is known as unfaithful, promiscuous, not exactly marriage material, especially for this prophet, right? It's like I said, it's his... It's his job, basically, to be known as this man of God, to be faithful and and teaching and and upright and so on. So there's all kinds of implications here for for Hosea when he receives this news from God that God had picked out a wife and her name was Gomer. Hosea, in his faithfulness to God, he obeys says, if you say so, um, alright, I'll go find Gomer, I'll propose and we'll get married. And so he does, he follows through and they do get married and they have kids, they have three children that we know about. The first one was a child of his own, the next two probably weren't his, Uh, Gomer probably had them with other men. And they give them names which represent... um, Judgment and bad things for Israel, and then God promises that those names will be changed into hopeful and beautiful things 
for God's people. It's very interesting. So that's kind of the first three chapters, and then chapters 4 to 14 um, detail this. They, they, tell God's, um, they tell about how God's people should return, and, and there's illustrations and pictures, and it's very interesting, and there's hope. There's hope for, for Israel. And, and the point is that the marriage between this prophet and the, the prostitute is an image uh, it's it's a living image, it's a picture that you can that for God's people to see of how God pursues them in their unfaithfulness, and He loves them with faithfulness in spite of how they have been unfaithful and how they will be continue to be unfaithful to Him in the future. So there's a few verses I want to read which sort of summarize things and and it really brings it back around to what we were talking about at first about how God is for us and what does it mean that, that, that God would be for us. Let's read Hosea chapter 2 verses 14 to 20 where God is speaking. This is after he's told, he's described, you know, the situation to Hosea. God speaks and says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her. And this means Israel, his people. I will bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth. As at the times when she came out of the land of Egypt. And on that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. Baal was the idol of the the land which the Israelites were uh, running around with instead of God. God says, you will call me your husband instead of him. I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things on the ground. I will abolish the bow, the sword, and the war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. Remember that the Israelites know very much about war and unsafety. God promises the opposite. He says, then in verse 19, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know the Lord. God is for his people. God is for Israel. God is for us. God is for us in such a way that he speaks to us with tenderness to draw us back to him after the thousandth time we've failed. He's for us insofar as he he pursues us in our darkest moments. Right? He's driven to be with us even while we are running away God is for each and every one of us with a love that goes to these lengths to be with us. So if we ask how much, how deep does God's love run for us? What is his faithfulness? You know, if we could test it, what would it look like? 
it's described here. This is how faithful he is to you and I. God commits himself to his people, meanwhile knowing that ultimately they'll continue to turn on him and fail him and to go away with other gods and worship them instead. God is for us even when we are against him. So this morning, the, I guess the framework with, with which I want to discuss how God is for us is in terms of his faithfulness to us, how deep his faithfulness runs and what it means. Um, and it's good to talk about because when we, you know, we talk about how God is faithful quite often, but I think sometimes it's, we don't think, we don't get the depth of that, right? Like we think, we say, well, God is faithful. That means, well, he's just, he's not going to let you down, right? Or, or he'll, I don't know. And, and that's true. That is a part of it. But, but how far does, how, how deep does this go? How far will his faithfulness reach, right? In the story of his people, Israel, and, and in the picture of the wedding and, and, and Gomer and Hosea, it's, it's an intense faithfulness that chases after us even while we fail him and are unfaithful to him. God is true to us even while we are not true to him. Um, I also think it's good to talk about God's faithfulness because there are misconceptions about about God, that's kind of what I, what I described this you know sermon series being about. We're doing away with some of the wrong thinking that that we've picked up along the way, and it doesn't actually come from from the Bible. Um, so as far as this goes, oftentimes, you know, we've set God up in our minds to be a God who would only respond to those who have somehow made themselves worthy of. His presence, right? Or, or who have somehow um, put themselves together just enough to 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 catch God's eye and and receive His His love and affection there. And and as I say it, I mean, well, this you know, this isn't true. This isn't what we read in the Bible. But in myself, as I as I go about my day to day, my relationship with God, it's easy for me, mostly subconsciously, to slip into this kind of thinking, right, where it's somehow performance based, or that I that I can, um, you know, earn God's love or make Him love me more by by not sinning, right, or or I can make Him love me less, or or, or make Him turn away from me if I do mess up and I do fall short, and this just leaves me confused and insecure. And ultimately missing out on the relationship that God already has made a way for me to have with him. So I think many of us struggle to relate to God because we have kind of set him up in this sort of, I don't know, points-based system or something, right? Where his faithfulness is contingent upon our faithfulness to him and so on. And this leads us into all kinds of difficult territory. But the gospel is the good news, and it, it very much goes against this way of thinking, right? Whether it's the Old Testament and the story of God's faithfulness, or, or the, the image of Jesus coming and all that he did and taught, or, or the teaching from Paul and others in the letters which talk about um, grace through faith and so on, not through works, whatever, whatever it is. 
The good news is that God is for us. That God's made a covenant, right, to his people. And, and this means if God makes a covenant, he will never, ever, 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 ever break it or fall through on what he has promised. He won't. It's not in his makeup. He's holy and perfect. He cannot fail you. He can't break his promise to love and redeem his people. And so he pursues them. That's how faithful God is, is this this picture of the prophet Hosea, the marriage to Gomer, and the, you know, fully disclosed, knowing what was Gomer, uh, Hosea knew what was going on, and, and he was still obedient to God because of the picture it would paint of God's faithfulness. God does the unthinkable to convey his love to you and I to make it possible for us to know him. This leads me to kind of an aside talking about, you know, the unthinkable and, and the lengths to which God went for us to know him and, and this picture of the, um, the, the prophet and his marriage to Gomer and so on. I challenge us to to understand that we, you know, we go out into the world and we take the good news with us, right? But I think more often than not, we are waiting for the most convenient or opportune or comfortable or natural feeling way to, you know, show people God's love and explain it to them. You know what I'm saying? But when we read about someone, you know, a prophet like Hosea and what he did to show God's love to people. We should be challenged in our in our uh, evangelism, I suppose, and in the way that we uh, are willing to to show love to the people who need to know about God's love. It may be uncomfortable, you know, if we're willing to listen and follow God. There, it may be unconventional. It may be costly or difficult, or cause you to have to sacrifice something. But this would be in the character of God. And, and the example that we read about for us to, to be open to doing that. So it's, um, it's a challenge for you and for myself to remember that. Okay, I'm going to jump ahead. I want to read from uh, the prophet Ezekiel, another Old Testament prophet who, who speaks for God. Ezekiel 36, 22 to 6 explains this. And it'll sound familiar with what we've been talking about. Uh, Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which... You have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations, I will gather you from all the countries, and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. That's grace. 
I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put in you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. So this is God's plan. This is God's promise and it's, and it's you know, quite far into God's uh, adventurous history with his people. He's proclaiming this again through Ezekiel to say, I know what's going on and I love you. Again, God is not only faithful to us so insofar as you know we hold up our end of the deal, right? He's been planning salvation while we were at our worst. Right? He knows us. He knows us better than he knows me better than I know myself. And he's pursued me to this point and he won't stop because he loves me. That's how he loves me. This is amazing. This is what I'm thankful for. So again, I want us to kind of, one thing is to, to turn from our thinking where we're, where God's kind of placed us on this religious spectrum and, and we can kind of move over closer to him if, if we are, are a better person or something. But, but if we're you know, doing poorly and, and not doing the right things, then we're getting shuffled back down further. No, 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 that's, that's not what Jesus came to accomplish, right? That's not to say that uh, sin has no consequences, obviously. We make bad choices and we deal with the consequences of doing them. And, and that breaks God's heart, right? He's, he's our father and watching his children uh, make a bad choice and then, and then suffering for it. Oh, oh the anguish that he um, would know because of that, you know, with his people of Israel, with, with anyone who, who goes against his will. But as far as the nature of God and the, and the salvation that he's planned for us, the grace with which he's, he's provided a way and the love that he has for you and I, I hope that when we see this, we can say with conviction and joy, you know, that yes, God is for me. God is for us. God is for me. God is for Israel in his pursuit of them in this incredibly gracious and always faithful way. And God has not changed. And he is faithful. He's that faithful to me and you. Through and through, God is for us. The moment where we see this most clearly, I think, you know, put on display the force of God's salvation against the power of sin and destruction in the world was at the cross. Right? So we look to Jesus and we look to him on the cross and we see how God's faithfulness cost him. It cost him uh, so much more than we can imagine, right? It cost him far, far more than what it cost... Um, Hosea to, to marry the prostitute or whatever. No, it's, it's, that's just a semblance of the cost of, of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for you and I. For him who knew no sin to be sin on the cross, right? Jesus knew no sin. He was perfect. And yet, when he was on the cross, he bore the weight of, of the sin of humanity on himself so that we could be righteous through him. 
right? Not through our works or, or our, our own, you know, faithfulness to God necessarily or our lack thereof or anything like that, but through Him and His perfection. So we look to Jesus at the cross and we see the way that, that, that He uh, provided for us to to uh, know God and to know the love of God and to be a part of this covenant which I mean is a whole nother incredible uh, theology right in God's word about covenant and, and old covenant and new covenant and so on this is it's, it's good stuff which we're not necessarily explaining today but know that through what Jesus sacrificed on the cross that, that by doing this that we're invited in to to know and benefit from and be a part of this relationship with God, which we've seen, you know, through the, the text in the Old Testament, the faithfulness which, with, with which God uh, chased after and promised himself again and again to Israel. This is for me and you through Jesus, his son. So, obviously, if, if you're sitting here and you're thinking, or if you've ever thought, oh, I, you know, God cannot love me. God can't love me because of X, Y, and Z. I'm here to tell you that you're wrong. That's not the God of the Bible. That's not the God I know, and that's not what Jesus tells us either. God loves you. God goes after each and every type of person. There was thousands of years of God pursuing uh, Israel, and, and, and drawing them back to himself to that place where he would uh, where they would finally know him again right and turn from their idols and repent and God God chases us with that as well so I, I invite you to put your trust in him and to uh, receive this to, to receive the good news and believe in it to, to uh, put yourself back in his arms right to know his love his faithfulness and and the unfailing nature of that and how, how faithful God is to, to me and to you and to us, his church.